Ohmagyanatinirandasya Gyananjana Salakaya Chakshumilitam Yenatasmaishi Gurve Namaha Vandeshi Krishna Chaitanya Nityananda Sohojito Godadai Pushpabanto Chitro Sandotamonudo So I read this morning that the topic was oneness and difference. Is that right? Unity and diversity. Something like that. So I'll try to talk about it, which is uh, perhaps not that easy. They're both opposites. And to bring them together in one place at one time seems uh, rather uh, inconceivable. But um, it may be possible. Of course, they're big words. Unity, diversity, oneness, difference, identity, difference. And ultimately, I, I think to address it comprehensively, we'll have to shift at some point to um, a metaphysical world view. And um, at the same time, it may be good to start the discussion with some practical idea about oneness and difference and how it affects our everyday lives and how, for example, we all pine for unity and at uh, the same time we want our own individuality. It seems like, uh, again, a hard hard mix to for these two things to come together for us, but they are very much at the heart of what um, we're living for and pursuing in all of our endeavors. And throughout life, human endeavors, we we seek unity and we seek to uh, stand out as an individual. And I think that, again, while these two are opposites and to bring them together in one place is in one sense inconceivable, or let's say it, uh, the idea of doing so it takes us beyond the limits of reasoning. By reason, it's not possible to bring the two together in one place simultaneously, entirely. But hopefully, there is um, life beyond reason, which is um, a reason-ruled life that is um, interesting to a point, but ultimately very static and dry and boring. Reason can help us in as much as, in one sense, our present plight in material existence is that we are driven, if you will, by the force of the mind and our senses. We have five senses for perceiving, sight and hearing and smelling, tasting, touching, and then we have motor senses as well. And um, in one sense, our life constitutes answering to the demands of the senses which pull us in different directions, often at the same time. So it's difficult to, to serve such um, masters who aren't unified <laughs> in their demand upon us other than that they're 
all demanding, and um, and they uh, are never satisfied. We they have an urge to give a crude example to eat, and so we do. And when the stomach says enough, the tongue says more. So we are pulled into different directions, and the result is indigestion. Where that we suffer, <laughs> neither of the that they're satisfied for a little while, both the tongue and the and the uh, and the stomach. But then they'll they surely return again to call upon us. So, in so many ways, we're being pulled in so many different directions. And that uh, force, so to speak, that the uh, the senses, those urges have upon us, urges that are in relation to objects, things, people, and so forth, objects of sight, forms, objects of hearing, sound, and uh, objects of objects of taste and touch and so forth. The interesting, one of the interesting things about this is that is that these things are not alive in a sense. The senses, the objects of the senses, they come to life, or they appear to come to life because we're alive and we lend our life to them. We are consciousness, and consciousness is the perceiver, the experiencer, and matter, be it in the form of our senses, our eyes, our ears, our tongue, and so forth, or the objects that they reach out to, objects of sound and sight and so forth, they are experienced, they are perceived. We're the experiencer, we're the perceiver, we are the taster, we are the seer, we are the hearer. Just like I have glasses, but my glasses don't see, we think his eyes see, not perfectly, therefore he needs glasses, but without the eyes, However good the prescription is, the glasses won't afford any sight. But if we go further along those lines in that direction, we will also conclude that the eyes don't see either. But it's there's because there's someone, so to speak, uh, inside this whole configuration of senses. There's life. There's consciousness. There's an entity. That consciousness lends itself to the eyes and to the glasses and to the object that it sees and so forth. And the world comes to life, but we are the life. This is the point. So I'm making a distinction here between matter and consciousness. Material objects, the objects of the senses, sounds, forms, tastes, and so forth. They are also not something to take so seriously because why? They're here today and gone tomorrow. You reach out to touch something because it appears to be, appears in a particular way to you, like it's, it's uh, endearing or it's, uh, it's favorable or it's good and it might turn into something very bad, right? Relationships can be like that. We reach out to touch someone and it turns into our worst nightmare and theirs as well. So just like in a dream, you embrace a beautiful person and they turn into a monster perhaps. So it happens in waking life as well. Just, <laughs> just 
just takes a little longer. <laughs> and because, incidentally, it takes a little longer that transformation to take place, we give it more credibility. So the point being here, side point, that endurance lends to credibility. We are looking for an enduring life, not a life that is, well, itself, here today and gone tomorrow. Our body, our personality, our mindset, our likes and dislikes and so forth, they're all going to pass with the passing of this particular um, frame, if you will, in the movie of our life. Consciousness is enduring. It lends itself to matter. Matter takes on a life, so to speak. We bring the, the driver brings the car to life. It has no meaning without the driver. But that whole affair that we call everyday life and so forth, unfortunately, the more we're plugged into it, the more we lose sight of what we are, that we are the seer, that we are the life, that we are animating the whole affair, in a sense. And we lose a sense of all that we could be and the experience of all that we, all that we are. I mean, what I'm saying, in a sense, is that the whole world of material animation, all the busyness and whatnot that goes on, is all a sleeping condition of the Atma, of the Self. The more we go outward, the more we lose sight of our inner Self and the fact that it's like kind of what the world's going around. You know, there was a Copernican, if you will, revolution years ago, right? Where it was determined by a heretic, if you will, Copernicus, that the that things were going around the sun rather than the planets revolving around the earth. That was a revolution. He was a heretic from the Christian point of view. and But as it was interesting that as that proved to be true, then it was apparent that people were functioning based on ideas of how the world worked, natural laws, which actually weren't the natural laws. Just an interesting side point. But at any rate... This, um, this is another kind of revolution, if you will, that, that I'm speaking about. Not that the world moves around the earth, not that it moves around the sun, although to some extent both of those things are true. Without the sun, what will grow, and without growing, what will we eat, and, and so on and so forth. And how will the mind be peaceful if it's always cloudy and happy, <laughs> and so on. So, but to take it further, we come to the idea that I'm talking about, that actually the world, matter, is moving around consciousness. And we are a unit of consciousness. And to the extent that we are driven by the force and the demands of the senses in relation to sense objects, we lose sight of that fact. So we're really off-center in our perspective on life, out of balance, and we're really kind of answering, if you will, to the call of the wild. The senses are taking us towards uh, not spirituality, but kind of animality, and as much as animal life is said to be not uh, based 
to the same extent that our complex form of life is based on reason. We're said to be rational animals. We question that sometimes. That's good, but but uh, we do have, we do see that we do see practically that reason surfaces to a large extent in the human experience. This is the time that we're living in, humanity. We're living in a human time, human space. All of us here tonight. That's a very different space than than a plant space or a, or an animal space. Because, and this is one of the principal reasons, because reason comes to surface, to the surface, and we can think about the fact that we exist. We can contemplate that. That's like really incredible to think about. But as much as we're driven by the force of the senses, we don't think about it that much. And we're driven towards an irrational life not a reason-ruled life, not, a, not even a polite life, necessarily. So, this is a, kind of a, a human predicament. At the same time, that reason, as I'm saying, has its place and value, because we're just reasoning here, to one extent. And we're reasoning that it's in our interest to, to sit down, maybe quietly, and, you know, they say, they say um, don't just sit there, do something. So, don't just do something. Sit there has its place also. Hmm? Sit there and think, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? What's it all about? And a lot of it is all about, like I say, this, this force of the senses that's driving us in relation to sense objects in the pursuit of happiness, even though none of these objects have the potential to fully satisfy us ever, at least in the sense that, as I say, we're looking for enduring happiness and all of these objects are here today and gone tomorrow. Even the sense of self we have that's based around the mind and senses will be gone. It's one frame, as I said in the movie, of our life. We are trying to make an Academy Award-winning motion picture out of it, but we have to draw back and look at the whole reel. And then we can see that where there is scope for actually making our life successful. And that success will be determined by the extent to which we come to know about the self around which the whole world is really going in one sense. In the Gita, famous speech of Sri Krishna to Arjuna, it said, prakritim vidime param jiva mahabhavo yayedam dharyate jagat Krishna is saying there what I'm saying. He said, or I'm saying what he's saying. <laughs> he says, <laughs> he says, oh, there's this thing called matter. He describes some of it. All these sense objects, senses, the ego that goes with the, that point in which consciousness identifying with matter causes this Ego. Ego means identity, to spring out. Ego of I am American, or I am Indian, or I'm a man, or a woman, or black, or white, or animal, or plant, or whatever it may be, an identity. An identity based on a 
particular configuration of matter that will last for a little while and disappear. False identity, one that's not enduring. So he says, matter is made up of these things. He says, our identity, ego, that's material. Our present identity. Now, if we have a real identity, that means we must have a real ego, too. That's another topic. We'll come to that. But first he describes matter, and then he says, and then there's the jiva, jiva bhuta. Jiva means life. First there's matter, then there's life. And he's saying, we are life. And in connection with matter, yayidam dharyate jagat, we are making the whole thing go around. I've said this before, it's worth repeating in other places, that if matter mattered independently of consciousness, who would know about it? Who would care? You see, consciousness is the knower. Consciousness is the feeler. Consciousness is the experiencer. So what is matter without consciousness? Scientists sometimes would like us to think that consciousness comes out of matter. But we think that matter comes out of consciousness. Stone is a conception. It's consciousness, in a way, through intellect imposing itself on matter and categorizing and judging and, and so forth. So the Gita teaches, and all the Hindu sacred texts and and those of all of most spiritual traditions, that consciousness is primary, matter is secondary, and the two are distinct in a way. One is experienced, the other is the experiencer. So to live a life without knowing yourself, especially human life, where the opportunity to do so, so much comes to the fore because we have reasoning, power, and and we can, we can exercise reasoning to check ourselves in terms of the call and the demand of our senses. And we do that every day, right? I mean, you know, you're not in the middle of the shopping mall and just feel an urge and jump on some lady, you know, or vice versa. <laughs> just, you know, that's just uh, not the thing to do. But it, in animal society, of course, that goes on. There is no such... Probably don't have the reasoning to think about it. They're driven by the force of the senses. So, you know, it's understood. But we have this reasoning that comes to bear in human consciousness. Human life is, a, is an evolution of, of consciousness from less complex form of life through what's called the principle of karma that you've all, of course, heard of. There are acts that are seeds that are sown. There are fruits to be reaped. And, and a good part of that constitutes where we are now and where we'll be next and so forth. And so, you know, we did something, right? We got a human form of life. We can think about all these things. We're kind of like out of jail for a while here on probation or something. We have, a, we have an opportunity to, to go beyond the, the jailhouse the, well, the, or the demands of the uh, senses, which are restricting. They're not facilitating us as much as they're restricting us. It's not, as I said, because we have eyes that we can see. No. The eyes are getting in the way of our seeing. What can you see with the eye? To what extent can you appreciate beauty and form with the eye? When the eye cannot even perceive the perceiver. And beauty is in the 
I am the beholder, you're the beholder, and this I cannot even see you. You cannot even see yourself. You understand what I'm saying? As a, as a unit of consciousness with the eye. So what capacities the eye have to afford us experience of beauty? Actually, it gets in the way. And similarly with all of our senses. We're thinking they're facilitating us, but they're, they're limiting us. So to come out from underneath that, well, reason can be helpful. And we do that to one extent or another, largely in our everyday lives on the base of reason, in comparison to the less complex forms of life that don't do that. And I've given an example to help us appreciate that. So it's reasonable to think, let's pursue that a little bit further. That's reasonable. But it's also reasonable to conclude that reason in and of itself can't afford us the full sense of freedom that life is really about. Because as I said, this is our topic, by reason, we cannot figure out how to bring these two things together, unity and diversity. They are contradictory notions. To bring them together in the same place at the same time, this is not possible by reason. But what I'm saying is that well, it's good to know that as good as reason is, and it's as helpful as it can be, as I've said, there's life beyond the limits of reason also. After all, a reason-ruled life is a life in which we proceed with caution. Like you're all listening to me and using your reasoning, and you're like cautious. What is he saying? Okay, I'll accept that. I'm not sure about that. Some things you let go into your heart. Yeah. Some things you're not. You're screening it. If you go to the store, you might want to buy something and you want to look what's in it. You're cautious. So our reason-ruled life is a life where we proceed with caution. What we want is a heart-ruled life. And love. Love. We'll come to that. What is that? It's not reasonable. Even materially speaking, transcends reason, or at least retires reason. Now people think it was a bad idea. <laughs> she loved him, he loved her, I knew it wasn't going to work, but I couldn't tell them, and uh, they didn't listen to reason, and now they're in, you know, the problem that they're, they're in, the predicament that they're in. So what do we, I mean, what, what to do? We want to love. I want to say tonight that love does resolve all contradictions, and it transcends reason. And we sense that to be true. And therefore, we want, really, in our pursuits in everyday life, we want a life that, that transcends the limits of reason. Reason cannot bring the whole thing in its fist. And reason doesn't give any taste either. Knowing by the power of reason what is an apple is not the same as tasting an apple, which you cannot explain what it's like. It tastes, well, this taste bud does this and it reacts like that and, and so forth. That's never going to give you the juice of tasting the apple. So my point being here is that we've gone from an animal kind of sense-ruled wild life that uh, is not reason-ruled and it's problematic to a reason-ruled life. Sounds good. Reasons should be the common language that we all speak, not English or Spanish or Hindi or Telugu or whatever. But um, 
does the language of reason really allow us to express ourselves fully? And does a reason-ruled life allow us the, the capacity to fully experience all that life has to offer? And, the, and the, our sense, if we think about it, if we examine ourselves, we're a little introspective and use our reasoning, we'll come to the conclusion, no, reason has its, its limits. And that's reasonable. After all, we're talking about the idea that what we are is consciousness, not matter. And while I've talked about sense objects and senses being matter, I want to make clear that in our school of thought, mind is also matter, although sometimes you use the phrase mind over matter. But we see matter, mind, as kind of a subtle form of matter, and intellect and reasoning also, that their mind is not spiritual, reasoning is not spiritual, but you are. Consciousness is categorically different from matter. We have a hierarchy, if you will, in the Gita of matter, from sense objects, like things that we taste, as I said earlier, or see, or forms that we see, or sounds that we hear, objects, and then we have the senses, which are the vehicles through which we get information, and then what happens? That information is relayed to kind of the central computer of our material life, the mind. So we've gone from sense objects to senses to mind. And the mind, what it does is, in a very simplistic sense, when the senses in touch with a sense object give an experience, it's relayed to the mind, and the mind makes a determination. That felt good. I like that. That was bad. I don't like that. That was good, that was bad, that was happy, that was sad, that's hot, that's cold. The mind makes this kind of determination. After all, just to illustrate my point further, if you touch something, let's say you come in the room here, and everybody looks around, look around at everything. So then you go back out, and somebody, your friend says, did you see that picture? That was really nice. You say, no, I didn't see it. You looked right at it, and I didn't see it, because your mind was somewhere else, right? So in order to have the experience of the sense object, the sense has to contact the sense object, but the mind has to be connected to the sense also, right? So these messages are being sent to the mind, and the mind makes a determination. That's good, that's bad, this is happy, this is sad, this is hot, this is cold. And that becomes our world then. What's good for you is bad, maybe bad for me. What's happy for you may be sad for me. What's hot for you may be cold for me. We're all living in our own world own subjective mental world. And I want to say to you, the mind is not spiritual because that world is not real. It's not enduring. It could change. What's hot for you could change. It could become cold for you as you get older or you know, in any number of ways. And what's hot in your mind may be cold in my mind. So which is it? These, this is not giving us a full picture of the whole. The fact is it's not hot or cold. It's not good or bad. It's not happy or sad. Those are all determinations made by the mind, and we're living with those in our not-so-sovereign domain, the world of our mind, and at odds with others. There's a voice in the background of intellect sometimes that speaks, if we give it a chance. And when the sense contacts a sense object, and the mind is connected, and the mind says, I like that. Sometimes the reason says, you may like it, but it's not good for you. So we're going a little higher. 
from mind to a subtle kind of judgment, judging capacity. Still, what happens, sometimes we do it anyway. Sometimes we don't listen to reason. And then we get disappointed, and then we do it again, <laughs> and get disappointed, and we do it again. And, and that way reason says, I'm going to sleep here. This is, this is useless. Hmm? Reason. Um, but still, reason, although the upper end, if you will, of the material hierarchy is still matter. It's something is, it's us, consciousness, that's causing this intellect, mind, senses, and sense objects to take on a life, so to speak. And why reason is not spiritual? Because by reason alone, we cannot be satisfied, and we are spiritual by nature. So because it is inferior in constitution and categorically different, it's matter, I'm consciousness, reason cannot satisfy me. That's why the whole argument about God is, is you know, if, if God would could be demonstrated by reason, then I'd believe in him, is, is a ridiculous. You know, the, he's not coming to court there, <laughs> the court of reason. God's not showing up. Do you exist? We're going to reason it out. He's not going to show up there. It's a no-show for him. It's like eh, reason is inferior to our self. What to speak of our source? If we're a unit of consciousness, then we could posit that we have a source. Like if we're a ray of light of the sun, then there's the sun, the source. So even we, reason can't satisfy us and neither can it prove our existence. We're talking about this rationally and you know, I'm speaking I'm speaking some theory and I'm speaking based on my experience and realization also. I said earlier that you're listening with your reasoning and you let some things in and, and you're protecting your heart. It's yourself you're protecting with your intellect. If I can speak in such a way as to capture your heart, then you're going to let your intellect go. You're not going to screen it anymore. The heart will come out. you feel happiness and satisfaction, fulfillment in that. And spiritual growth, this is the whole idea. To come out from underneath the oppression of the mind, the senses, demands, and the limitations of reasoning. As important as reasoning is, as I've mentioned, it falls short in terms of satisfying us. And what we're talking about, the idea, the theoretical idea that we are a unit of consciousness, it can't be proven by reasoning. I'm giving good logic and you can go with it, or you may not. There's probably logic you know, that other people would give to the contrary. But if we can capture people's hearts a little bit, then they can do something that's not reasonable, but not unreasonable, that transcends reason. That's what we call sadhana, spiritual practice. Spiritual practice is not a rational exercise, but it's not unreasonable or irrational to engage in spiritual practice. It's quite reasonable because the premise is that without a transrational exercise to be involved in, my heart or myself, what I am, is not being different from matter, which is the theory, is not going to come out. It's not going to answer to reason. There's life, and I say it's good news, beyond reason. And only there 
is there the possibility of this unity and diversity, both of which we pine for equally at the same time as it possible to experience such, which, using a material example, shows itself to an extent in love, which knows no reason. I mean, it's a problem, as I said. It can be a problem. But when you're in love and you retire reason and you just, you're feeling something and you won't let go, even if it, you know, reason shows it's not going to work out for you for the moment, you can't let go of that. All contradictions are resolved there in love. In, I'm talking just on a material basis here. In the context of our illusion life, egoic life even, love is the best thing that we, the closest we can come to because love knows no reason. Of course, you know, it could be just the call of the senses, like I'm saying too, but still, in this idea of love materially, what happens? Two people become one, but they're different at the same time. In other words, what happens is, I love you, you love me, we merge. What happens is your likes become my likes, and my likes become, we kind of say, we stay in the same body, but we change minds. I'll take your mind, you take my mind. And so I'm only, my only pleasure is your satisfaction, and your only pleasure is mine. We were two. You and I became one in love. What happens when you and I become one? How do we refer to that? You and I becoming one. It becomes we. It's not really one, is it? It's we. There's a oneness there, but there's a, there's a difference there too at the same time. There's two of us. We're both one. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make any sense. The two of us are one. You and I are one. Well, if you and I are one, there's, there's no meaning of saying that. <laughs> there's no conversation to be had. There's no you and I. But there is a you and I in love that's at the same time one. And there's a unity and a diversity. And because this is so compelling in life, the taste of even material love, it's so like, <sighs> you can, you know, the world can be burning down and <laughs> it doesn't matter. We've got one another kind of a thing, right? So the idea is, still it's obvious, it's folly and it's not, uh, it's not enlightened life, and so forth. But is it just completely illusion, and is the answer to life and the fulfillment of life a reason-ruled life, or is the end of all, of everything, knowledge? Or is there an end of everything, love, and is there a place for love where love is not a, not a problem like it is in material life? This is the question. So there are metaphysical schools that will reason, and wisely, that this material pursuit of love is futile and it's just the, the drive of the senses and it should be retired, we should sit peacefully, meditate, realize yourself. All this, the pursuit of diversity is the problem. The diversity is you think it's hot, I think it's cold, you think it's happy, I think it's sad. This is just a product of the senses and the mind, it's illusion. It's really all one, there's no difference. We're all one. There's no we. There's only one. 
and there's nothing more to say, right? There's some good reasoning to that, but it's kind of like, mm, it falls a little short. So some schools of metaphysics, they reason like this. Ultimately, the diversity that we experience in life is just a product of the mind and the senses. And ultimate reality is just a unity. There's no individuals. There's just one pulsating consciousness. And I'd say that, I mean, I'm giving it just a kind of superficial uh, representation of such metaphysical worldview, but at least for me, it's not satisfying. I want the diversity, and I want the unity, and I, and I see that, that, that this is what we all want. It's what we're all pursuing. So it's not very happy news for me to learn that the diversity has to be done away with in the name of unity. And I say, what kind of unity is that? If you killed everybody else and you're alone, you're, there's only you, what kind of unity is that? I mean, do we want to just listen to one note? Hmm, for, or, you know. <laughs> is, is that really unity? Or is there unity and harmony? That's, that's, now that's, we're getting somewhere. But the more notes that somehow come together and make a sound, that I can, then I can just listen to that forever. So this is what we really are looking for. And we, the problem is we're just looking in the wrong place. We're looking in relation to sense objects through the instruments of the senses. And, and then we're making determinations about that with the mind and reasoning power. And, and it's just not working out. It's just we're not fulfilled. And Whatever we're doing, it's not enduring. We sense that life should be enduring and so forth. So, Sri Chaitanya, he thought, hmm, our lineage, that you know, what we look for is, is what reality is about. We're just, again, as I said, looking in the wrong place. So we need some, some platform of knowledge to view the whole thing from. Now we're viewing it from ignorance, with from the ego identity of I'm American, I'm a woman, I'm black, I'm white, and running around like this trying to find what our soul is all about. The whole animation of the world, as I said earlier, is just a sleeping condition of the self. You're asleep to what you are, but the whole thing is moving. Now what must be the awakened state of the self? Is it just still? When its sleeping condition is making the whole world just move and gyrate and dance and, and so forth. All in kind of a dis distorted way, if you will, because the self is the master, so to speak, the self is, is asleep. Now, are we to conclude that if the self would be awakened fully, it would just sit peacefully forever, alone, pulsating, or something, or relieved? that the diversity of material existence that put me at odds with others and myself is now over. Ah, oh, relief. That's a kind of happiness. Ah, oh. but how long are you going to sit there? <laughs> you know, if somebody's chasing you down the street, the whole pe bunch of people chasing you down the street and you get to the end and you find a door to go in and you lock it. Ah, oh, I'm relieved. And these... The senses, these people, for example, the mind, are not chasing, <laughs> not ch <laughs> they're not chasing me anymore. Ah, relief. 
then how long are you going to sit there before you're going to like, are they still out there? Can I go back out? Is there any way to... <laughs> Something like that. Hmm? Hmm. So, it, it, no. This is a metaphysic that I'm speaking about in which the diversity that we pine for and the unity that we pine for equally can be experienced in a doctrine, a metaphysic that culminates not in knowledge as to the futility of material pursuit, but in love, which enables us, for that matter, to enter back into the material pursuit and be unaffected by it, to be here and to be like in the world, but not of it. Krishna gives an example in the Gita. If you have a lotus that sits on top of the water, the lotus comes out of the mud in the bottom, and then it sits on top of the water. So it's in the water, but it's not. It's above it. So rather than try to abolish the world through philosophy and do away with all the diversity, to step back from it, see it for what it is, and take to a spiritual practice that gives us the prospect of re-entering it in a way that we can be in it, but not of it. Something like that. And so, this is the doctrine of unity and diversity. And to fully experience it, well, we have to realize through spiritual practice the difference between the self and the body. But it's important, in my humble opinion, to do that, to embark upon that practice, to take the effort that such practice makes in the context of an ideal, a metaphysic, that will actually afford us both of these things together, an ultimate reality of love. So to become, for example, what I mean by that is one with the absolute, but different at the same time. I'll give an example. In material life we have fire, and the fire has heat and light, right? So heat and light are not separate from fire. You can't have fire without heat and light, right? But heat and light are the energy of the fire. They're one with the fire, but they're, when we're talking about them, as if they're different. There's heat, there's light, there's fire. Fire generates heat. Fire generates light. Fire is the generator. Heat and light are generated. You follow me? In Sanskrit, we call this shaktiman shakti. There's the powerful, and then there's the power. They're one, but they're different at the same time. Let's take ourselves. I'm a person, and I have some power. All of you are people, you all have power. With my power, or I have all of our power, but just use myself, with my power I do things, like everybody does. So, for example, I'm an author. So, by my power, my shakti, I write books. So if you, if you want to talk about me, you say, well, I know Swami, he's a writer. He's an author. You're talking about my shakti, my power, by which I do things. And by knowing that, power of myself, you know me better than someone who knows knows of me but doesn't know my power, what I do. So, this is, it gets a little complex, but the point I'm making here is that ultimate reality is a power source and it has power. And by knowing the power, 
of the Absolute, so to speak. We can know the Absolute in a way that we could not otherwise, comprehensively. So, in our tradition, for example, we give the term Krishna to describe the Absolute Krishna. We say that reality is a person. It's just not us. I mean, we're part of that person. But our little personality, is, 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 as we see it today, is not it. We're a unit of consciousness. Just like the sun. Take the sun, for example. Sun and so many rays, right? So the sun has energy, so many rays of light and heat coming from it. So reality is a person. And that person has power, shakti. And what we are is one of the shaktis of that shaktiman, that power. Matter is another one of those shaktis. And then there's a third shakti. The power by which the Absolute experiences itself, tastes itself. The matter shakti is kind of like, to use an, uh, maybe an example, the shadow. And Krishna's like the sun. That's like the shadow. What goes on in the shadows under the influence of matter? The cloud. The ray of sun is like, like ourselves. We can be either in the clouds or we can be above the cloud. Something like that. And to be above the cloud is to, is to like to come into the, the life of the sun. Something's going on there. It's, it's something going on inside the sun. We see the rays and we feel it. So, but inside the sun, well, it's like nuclear reactions and all kind of, it's the sun's dancing inside. It's exploding. It's, it's alive. So, ultimate reality is a life. It has a life. Just like we, we're like a little sample, like a little sample God, but we're confused. We don't know that we're the sample. We're trying to be the God, so we're trying to create a life for ourselves. And we're making, you know, it's, it's problematic. We're not becoming fulfilled. Ultimate reality is a person. We're part of that person. We're a shakti of that person. If we come out from under the influence of the maya shakti, the illusory shakti, the material shakti, like I've been talking about through spiritual practice, we come to know ourselves. That's half the equation. We've done away with illusory difference and we've become one, in a sense, with God because now the Absolute is constituted of consciousness. We're constituted of consciousness. We no longer think ourselves to be constituted of matter. We're no longer moving in the opposite direction of the Absolute, of the love life of God. We're no longer going upstream. Do you follow me? When we're just following the demands of the senses, we're kind of going upstream. We're going against the, the system. What we are is consciousness. When we realize that, we realize our likeness, our oneness with the Absolute. Now to exercise ourselves in terms of the difference becomes possible. Now, in other words, love becomes possible. We can't find love in relation to matter because we're not matter. That's why we're having problems. We're consciousness. We're trying to find love in relation to matter. It's not working. If we're to find it, we have to become realize we're consciousness, then there's a prospect for finding love. So we realize our oneness with Bhagavan, with the Absolute, with the Godhead, in that we are a unit of light, of consciousness, not matter. And what possibilities then lie for us? And 
then bhakti, this bhakti, you know, we are, we are teaching bhakti, bhakti yoga. Bhakti comes from the root, Sanskrit root bhaj. It means to share. Think about it. Share. Share is giving and taking. It's, 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 a, it's an exchange. So there's, there's two. So what Sri Chaitanya is teaching is how, by a particular you know, spiritual practice, like this chanting, for example, that we began with, which is a whole, you know, part of a whole kind of very sophisticated system of spiritual culture and so forth, how to come out from within matter in the context of developing a relationship with the absolute, a love life. Again, we're looking for love, so how to love God, that's the idea, in a in a well-reasoned way. We're talking about love arising out of knowledge rather than the appearance of love that arises out of ignorance that's frustrating us. So in our practice, this is what we do. It's a simple thing. We take, I mean, it's not a, we're talking in a very complicated way, in a very abstract sense. And I said, if we're going to talk about oneness and difference coming together, it's going to get abstract at some point. So forgive me, but that's the topic that they gave me to talk about tonight. <laughs> so... So I mean, it's not a bad thing, but but you know, in one sense, the practice to realize what I'm talking about is really simple. Just like you take this chanting, it's not hard to do, is it? It's not rational when you chant. It's an exercise of the heart. You chant, hmm? Hare Krishna, Govinda, Jaja. This is if you love somebody, you know, you know, while you're alone, you're making up songs, or you hear the song on the radio, and you know, you're putting their name in it, and this is like what you do when you're in love. So, so we sing about Krishna. I'm giving a metaphysical kind of understanding of what is Krishna. Of course, then he's depicted in art as a flute player, and uh, uh, Sham is his complexion. According to Indian aesthetics, Sham is the color of romantic love. So these mystics who have gone where we're talking to, where unity and diversity are simultaneously present in a love relationship with the Absolute, where a unit of consciousness realizes a union with the source of consciousness and the two become we. And there's an ongoing eternal kind of affair that we call Leela. Have you heard the term Leela? It means play. Now our movement is karma. It means work. Because as much as you plug into karma, you owe. So, as I said before, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. This is the material existence. It's obligatory. You took, now you owe. Our material life is, is about exploitation. On one level or another, we're takers, because the body needs. We've identified ourselves with the body, so there we are, having to take, to feel fulfilled. We don't know that all this taking is not fulfilling us. Let go. Then there's some hope for fulfillment, some prospect. Let go. <laughs> Don't add on. Let go. So moving in this direction, then there's... We give up, give up exploitation. We, we can only fully give it up when we realize, I'm not this body. When we become a self-realized person, then we have a prospect for loving, really. Otherwise, it's all going to fall short. It's not going to fulfill us. So coming to that... It's possible through this simple act, for example, of chanting. These mystics, they chanted, they experienced within, and they, they envisioned 
reality as a person. And what would that person do? Just play. Leela. The whole thing is play. No work. Karma means work. You took, now you owe. To come out from that debt, then there's possibility to play. They've depicted, these mystics, Krishna as the ultimate beatific vision. And what have they, how, you see, I can't think how they depicted him. What they're saying philosophically by depicting like that, they're saying the absolute is just playing, has nothing to do, just play. You think, everything comes to this, this fellow, this boy, blue boy playing a flute? What, what are they talking about? Hmm? What they mean is that one who's only playing has all power because it takes power to play. Right? You have to have money in the bank if you want to take a vacation. You have to have worked and accumulated some power to play. So he's only playing. In the Hindi, Hindu pantheon of the many gods and goddesses, they're all doing something. They've all got something to do. Krishna has nothing to do. He's playing the flute. Only one thing he does have to do. Now we're getting very high theologically when it comes to the point we're talking about. He has to get Radha's attention. Krishna's not alone. I said that Krishna is like the powerful, and then he has power. There's matter, that's one Shakti. There's us, we're another Shakti. And I said there was a third Shakti also. I said like there's the clouds, matter, for example, in the analogy of the sun. There's rays of the sun, that's us. We could be under the cloud and not know there's sun up there, or we could be on the other side, in union with the sun. And inside the sun, something's going on. It's not just sitting there, giving out rays. It's exploding inside. It's dancing. It's, it's a nuclear reaction. I mean, there couldn't be a bigger thing than that in our you know, material estimation. Nuclear bombs are going off. It's just like exploding. And so I'm just using an analogy. So Leela means that the reality is just exploding and, and loving and dancing and he has nothing to do, Krishna, but at the same time, why is all this exploding and if he has nothing to do? Because this is the nature of love. We move in this world in pursuit of love and we cannot rest until we find it. And when we find it, we can only rest for a moment because life has a, love has a life of its own and off we go again. You understand? We're moving in search of love. We cannot rest until we find it. I found my love. And then, oh my God, it's a roller coaster. Hmm? <laughs> Ups and downs and where it will turn. And, and you know, the roller coaster, like as a kid, I never liked him that much because like, God, you know, you're supposed to like it, but man, this is crazy. <laughs> and you get sick to your stomach. You know. But, you know, you don't get off, you know. You don't get off. So love, my point being is love has a movement of its own and it's different than the movement of material life that's obligatory. Our relationships are obligatory. You know? They're based on karma. They're based on exploitation. My senses say it would be good to be with her. Her senses say it would be good to be with me for a while. Our senses change. We split up. The magic's gone. It's magic. We say the magic's gone, but we never stop to think, yeah, why am I chasing after magic? I just go look for it again. I get the magic and infatuation, and then it goes away. Stop the thing, but wait a minute. <laughs> it's mad. I, I should be looking for something more substantial. Is that more substantial thing just to sit quietly? No, there is love. 
And love comes to Leela. Not just sitting quietly forever, but entering into love life of, of Bhagwan. So they've depicted Krishna like this. He's moving. And what's moving him? His inner Shakti, personified as Radha. And if he doesn't get her pleasure, he cannot sit. He's dancing, playing that flute, only to attract her attention. What is Krishna in this mystic view? Krishna is the supreme enjoyer. What is Radha? Krishna is, like say, the perfect object of love, where you can repose your loving propensity and it will be fulfilled. Love is giving. There has to be a taker on the other end, a receiver. If we want perfect love, we have to give without any expectation of getting. That's one thing. But we also have to give in a place that can take unlimitedly. I may give without any expectation of giving, but if I'm giving to an object that can't reciprocate fully, it's not the full experience of love. Krishna means that perfect object of love, where we can give ourselves. And to the extent that we do, without an expectation of return, we become fulfilled because there's reciprocation. I mean, beyond your wildest imagination, I mean, if you could take everything, every sense experience that every person could have, all in one big syringe and inject it in yourself at once, you'd think, that might make me happy. No. Not at all, not in the least. One drop of what I'm talking about would drown the whole world of sense, sense experience. It's insignificant, meaningless illusion. No happiness there. Nirananda. God is sat, chit, ananda, eternal, cognizant, and ananda, full of joy. And material life is asat, achit, nirananda. Asat, it's not real in one sense. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Achit, what we call knowledge materially, is really ignorance from a broader perspective. And ananda, nirananda, what we call happiness is the beginning of misery. Because happiness in material life is attachment. I become attached to something. I think it's mine. But I find that it's not. <laughs> she goes with somebody else. Hmm? Or whatever, maybe. It's not. Nothing's mine. So it's a false happiness, false knowledge, in a non-enduring existence. So to come out from that, huh? and to enter into a love life with the Absolute, this is the idea that <coughs> from this chanting can be, what, what can be arrived at. These mystics, they saw Krishna like this, and they saw him chasing after Radha. What does it mean? The idea is he's the perfect object of love, and she is love itself, perfect love, perfect love, perfect, pure, absolutely selfless. And you have to hear the stories about Krishna, then you can understand it with a little philosophical-like explanation. She personifies perfect, absolute love. And Krishna is the perfect object of love. These are two, right? But they're one. She's his Shakti his primal Shakti. And I said earlier, the Shakti, the energy and the energetic are one, heat and light are one with fire, they're one and different at the same time, something like that. That Shakti is inside of Krishna, it comes out of Krishna. Like sugar is sweet, but it can't taste itself. So to taste himself, these are of course events in eternity, we talk about it with, it happened at this time, Radha appeared, you know, it's like, not like that. It's a, Language is, is limited. 
Radha and Krishna. Shakti, Shakti Man. Love, perfect love and the perfect object of love. And so what's happening in Leela, if you will, is that this Krishna is like, he's a connoisseur of love. Name for Krishna is Rasaraj, means he's the king of love. But he sees the measure of Radha's love and he thinks, well, this is like beyond my experience. She loves me. She sees things in me that I don't see. I can, just like, you know, you look at yourself in the mirror and you think you look like this. Somebody takes a picture and you go, that's not me. Other people, that's what you look like. Yeah, that's you. No, 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 that's not me. Other people close to you know you better than you know yourself. Right? Radha knows Krishna. This is the idea. More than Krishna knows himself. And this kind of turns the whole religious world on its head, this idea here. But the idea being that all religious traditions and spiritual traditions say, using different words, that God, which is just a word here, is the perfect object of love and veneration, right? And what we teach here is what is the object of Krishna's love. That's a pretty far out idea. Of God's love. Never stop thinking about it, but God has a love life. And so, and the Dalai Lama, I read it, I was reading it in the bookstore the other day, and I picked up one of his books while I was waiting for someone. I was reading it, someone asked the question that if God's the source of everything, what's the source of God? And he said, well, that's why we don't believe in God. He's a Buddhist, of course. Buddhists don't believe in God. Just because that's not logical. But I had a whole different reaction. It was very easy for me to answer. With the Krishna conception of God, what is the source of Krishna? If Krishna is the source of everything, Anadidadir, Sarvakarana Karanam, they said, so many verses about Krishna, source of everything. And what's the source of Krishna? I said, well, Radha, that's obvious. What's the source of Radha? Krishna. What's the source of Krishna? Radha. So, you know, it's like, what it means is this. Love of God and God are one. And different at the same time, but they're one. Radha is that love that makes ultimate reality dance and feel and move and, and want to have that perspective that the lover has for the loved. It's a very, this is a bit abstract, but it's interesting. See, this is the doctrine of love, ultimate love. It's this, this sun of the absolute is exploding in love, a relationship between the Shakti Man and the Shakti. The Shakti is animating. Like if you want to know about Krishna, like I said, you want to know about me, you want to know about my power, my Shakti, by which I do things. You want to know about Krishna, you go to Radha. That's what's making him go around. That's what everything is based upon. It means what? That God, ultimately, the Absolute, is fueled and energized, if you will, by love. So our ideal here in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, in, in our tradition, is love. Not the object of love, but love. But then again, people want to see Krishna, we say, what's the point? That's not the teaching. Serve Krishna. Because then you can see. By love, and love service is, you know, I mean, the basis of love is service, sacrifice, and so forth. So if you want to 
realize this unity and diversity simultaneously, which can only be experienced in love. You have to transcend the limited experience of mind and senses and reason and matter. You have to come onto the spiritual platform. There's yoga by which you can do that. But if you do that in the context of a yoga that takes you a step further and affords you this kind of... That's a doctrine of love, giving, sacrifice, mm-hmm. bhakti, devotion. Then what we're really teaching is become a lover. That's what you want anyway, to become a lover. Follow the mood of Radha. This is, a, philosophically speaking, this is a, she personifies a shakti, the inner shakti, the bhakti shakti, the shakti of, of devotion. So when we are a little jiva, a little soul, we are overwhelmed by matter, even though, as I said, we turn it on, we animate the world, still so we're overwhelmed by it. Like a person turns on their TV but gets overwhelmed by it, doesn't know they have a life outside the TV. Wife has to come and pull him away. Come away from that. Turn that thing off. The TV would have no life without him, but it took over his life. So to come out from that shakti, the influence of maya shakti, the material shakti, and come under the influence of another shakti, bhakti shakti. This is the idea. And under, under that influence, then, under Radha's influence, under Radha's tutelage, if you will, we can learn the perfect art of loving and giving. This is the idea. So there, in that, this is a metaphysic in which unity and diversity, in fact, the name of this metaphysic of Sri Chaitanya is Achintya Veda Veda Tattva, simultaneous oneness and difference, which can only be realized, as I say, in love that transcends reason, but a reasonable love that's directed towards the absolute. And in a way, that is exemplified by Radha, which is extraordinary, because in this kind of love exemplified by Radha, envisioned by the mystics, the whole experience, as we know it, of love is afforded. What I mean by that is, it's not the limit of reverential love that most religious traditions, for example, speak of. God, oh, I love God, Om. You know, prayers and hymns and bow down and om and what's happening in that kind of reverential love? You know, like in like with say Greek philosophy, from from eros to agape, from worldly love, it's all this unbecomingness to godly love and awe and veneration and reverence of the absolute om shanti shanti and bow down and hymns and the, in the Christian church and and so forth, this kind of thing you find. Reverential love. Come on. Reverential love is not the whole of love. But are you going to have the whole of love with God? You think, my God, you mean? Yeah. Like Radha loves Krishna. This is extraordinary. The Krishna idea that these mystics had was here there's a situation, there's a, there's a plane of experience in transcendence in which ultimate reality subordinates itself, that sun of Krishna subordinates itself to a ray. I mean, that's inconceivable. And, and, and what happens in that is that the, the sun 
takes on a shape like a ray. In other words, it comes down to our level. Krishna is depicted in a human form, right? You think, well, that's kind of limiting. No, what it's saying, it's, it's not saying that. It's saying, if you want a unity with infinity, if the finite wants a unity with the, inf- with the infinite, which is possible through love, otherwise it's not by reason, for the finite to know the infinite is mathematically not possible. So reasonably, it's but by love, if the infinite wants the finite to know, then it's infinite. It can do anything. If God wants to reveal himself to the finite, finite can know. So when the finite postures itself in relation to the absolute in love, then infinite becomes, well, attracted. And ultimately, if that love comes to the pitch of Radha's love for Krishna, for example, you're going to have a meeting between the finite and the infinite that's intimate. And in order for that to take place, the intimate has to take on a finite appearance. You follow me? Otherwise, like for example, if I, if I was to say I'm God and I'm not, and you believed me, you'd go, oh my God, wow, he's God. And you'd kind of step back. But there's a plane in which the Absolute doesn't want to have any distance from us in devotion. Devotion is almost limited. Devotion is like, create some distance. I'm devoted to, here, here's the offering. No, you become the offering. This is the idea. Become love. And what happens in this pitch of Radha's love that we teach about, this kind of ideal, and how to arrive at is that the Absolute comes down to like, in a finite appearance, so to speak, so that the majesty and Godhood of God is subordinated by the power of the love of the individual soul. And then it is play with God, love play with God that includes all types of interactions that we know to be love in this world. Parental love, Krishna has a mother. Friendly love, Krishna has friends. Cows. He has lovers like Radha, milkmaidens and so forth. It's all in the land, so to speak, of consciousness deep in there where that sun is exploding and there's play going on and it's, it, it's possible of this kind of intimacy with the Absolute through the, this, this is what this chanting really of Hare Krishna in particular is, is, is all about. So here is an idea anyway for you to consider in pursuit of unity and diversity. Jai Radhe, Jai Radhe, Jai Radhe. Any question? Yes, sir. You're talking about how we perceive, in a reasonable life, we may proceed with caution. We let some things into our intellect, and we filter some things out, some things we accept, and some things we reject, and we proceed in life with caution. Also, in pursuing love with Krishna and with with other individuals also, we, we sometimes we want to proceed with caution. We don't necessarily rush headlong into that. So why is it that we're fearful of loving Krishna or surrendering to Krishna in love? Well, the reason is because for a long time, since forever, we've been moving in a very different direction. Now you've just come to human life 
where there's a chance to start thinking about all these things. Otherwise, where, where have you been? What have you been doing? A very different life than what we're talking about. Illusioned life and all of its manifestations, very different from the love life of, 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 of the divine. So, so the idea is just coming to you. It's not a foreign idea. It hits home, you resonate with it. But you've been conditioned to rely upon the mind, rely upon the reasoning and your senses and so forth for, for perceiving for so long. So you're addicted to that. Much as I can point out to you theoretically that that's not getting you anywhere, still, you know, you're addicted to it. You're, you're habituated in that way. You're not going to walk out here to, tonight and stop thinking because, you know, I told you that thinking is not what enables you to know. You're the knower. You're not going to close your eyes because Swami said, well, eyes are limiting my seeing, so I'll just close my eyes. I mean, that wouldn't work either. There's a whole, there's a whole practice to it to come out and see and be, you know, what you are and so forth. And so, you know, people, people like myself are here to kind of, kind of coax you and, and we try to do it with good reasoning as far as possible. But if we're speaking with realization from the heart, even if you don't understand what I'm talking about or even understand 50% of it or 10% of it, still my well-wishing is going to you. It's creating what it was called a sunscar. I'm creating a sunscar, an impression on your consciousness that will enable you, as time goes on, to resonate with these ideas better, to understand them, to understand the logic of them, and enough to pursue a practice that corresponds with that reasoning. I'm giving a a, it's called Sambandha Gyan, a conceptual orientation. And it's coming from also the, the, the extent to which I can speak about it, the theory, is coming from my own realization, my heart. So I'm sharing that with you. It's creating an impression on you. We call it a sangskar for bhakti, for love, for devotion, absolute love. And it will come to help you in the future. Other opportunities like this come, you'll find you understand more. And at some point, it will accumulate to an extent that shraddha, faith, like is born, like, oh, I got it, I want to do this. this is then still, that faith will be tender in the beginning. It will be tender. And it's, it's a process of weaning you from the faith that you have. A person is his or her faith. That's what we are. We have a certain faith and we move accordingly. So. I'm trying to convert you from faith in your mind, <laughs> faith in your senses, faith in your reasoning, and so forth. And, um, you know, it, take, it may take some time. So, persons like myself, they're, they're trying to create so what we call it sukriti. It's a, it's a, like, a like I said, like a song scar. Like it, it, it's created in all species of life, even, by the movements, even, of, 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 of such a person who's moving only out of love for God, that whoever they, whatever they interact with, they will create, to one extent or another, some secret. You come here, you listen, you know, you don't know what necessarily I'm going to say, whether you're going to like it, but it's a nice place, and Archie's wonderful, you know that, and her husband's well, so. But, uh, and, you know, you go away from here thinking that something happened. In your own mind, you have some idea of what happened. But I may have another idea also of what's happening. And it's good, it's good for me, and it's good for you. So, but it takes a little time. Another question? Yes. So, um, you talked about the oppression of the mind and the senses. And um, how to get more liberated from that and be in the space of hearing from the heart 
the heart space. I want to know, the gentleman, my good friend, whoever would like to know, that how to be living, as we do to some extent, under the oppression of the mind and the senses, how to get to a place more readily by which we can hear from our heart, unencumbered by the mind and distracted by the senses, unencumbered by reasoning and doubts and, and, and by the distraction of the mind, which Swami's talking, but I'm thinking, I'm going to do that, or I'm going to do that over there, and I didn't pay that bill, and, and you know, it's going on for a while, and that kind of thing. You know, though it's a distraction of the mind, and, or the senses distract me, the call of nature, or I'm hungry, want to talk on end. You know, they, they always have good meals here, but this guy's going on forever. <laughs> so how to get? <laughs> I'm sorry. So how to get to a place where you're not as you know, you're hearing about these things, and not as encumbered by those things. And <laughs> I'm sorry for the long answer, but the but to make it simple, is you've got to hear more. <laughs> You got to keep good company, like the good company and good association. Then that that will naturally go away because in good association you'll you'll you hear and you see an example of somebody who's like that. It's also and it's and it's compelling and in a way that the theory is in and of itself not. So this is the best thing: keep good association. And you say, well, I you know I'm, I don't live around such people. Then move. <laughs> you got to do something too, you know. You got to make some effort. So. That's the secret. Yes, sir. Have you experienced yourself um, consciousness? It's um, different from matter. Like consciousness that is beyond perception of matter, or because I guess what I'm hearing you talk about all these different ideas that there's an underlying place where these merge where the idea of love and consciousness is beyond our physical self. Is this what you're... I've had experience of that, yes. That you're, is this what you're getting at? Right. With it sounds like language is really... Limited. A medium to try to explain something that's beyond our mind. That's why this chanting is useful. It's words, but they don't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, they're super, super sensible in a sense, yeah. It's just love. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. All right, so anyway, thank you very much, uh, our host, for having me here and for all of you to come tonight. It's very nice of you. It's been very helpful to me. Um, and um, the fourth time I've come, I hope I can come again. Thank you very much.